Now, this idea of a redeemer is all throughout the Bible. Um, the idea of a kinsman redeemer comes from the book of Ruth, but it also comes from earlier passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And there was a uh, requirement for a kinsman redeemer to step in when there was trouble, to step in when someone had to sell a field to pay off a debt, or even when someone was accused of a crime, or even if a family member was murdered. It was up to the kinsman redeemer, the closest relative, to redeem that situation or even redeem those persons. In the book of Ruth, we have that idea when Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. And many of you have studied the, the small, little, powerful book of Ruth. When we see Ruth and Naomi and what happens as they're in a terrible time in great need and God paints the picture of his redeeming work in our lives. To be redeemed means literally to be purchased back, to be bought with a price. You were redeemed not with silver and gold from your aimless conduct inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That was the price for your redemption. It was his own blood, his own life. And Job has been kind of mining the depths of this idea of an advocate in heaven, a witness, someone that could help him in his trial. His friends were no help. His wife was no help. His community was making fun of him. And we are in Job 18 as we see Bildad, the Shuhite, once again respond to Job. This is Bildad's second speech or second sermon, if you like. Just recall that Bildad the Shuhite was the shortest man in the Bible. That's how you can remember him. He was Bildad the Shuhite. Okay, anyway. And he says these words to Job. He's responding to Job, and Job's been asking big questions about his hope and uh, how he can be redeemed. Uh, notice he says, uh, 14 of chapter 17, If I call to the pit, you are my father, to the worm, my mother and my sister, where now is my hope? Who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? He's been asking questions about God, about the grave, about the afterlife. Some he gets right, many he gets wrong. But his big, biggest question in all of this is what is going on in my life? Why is God doing this to me? He doesn't know that Satan is the cause. He just believes that God has become his enemy, and he doesn't know why. And he knows that he hasn't done anything overtly wrong. He has not transgressed against the Lord. So he's even wondering, if this calamity came upon me for something I did wrong, what in the world did I do wrong that could have caused all of this? Well, his friends believe that he's a dirty, rotten sinner, and he needs to repent. And they're tired of hearing him. They're tired of hearing him try to make excuses, uh, tired of hearing him whine. And so Bildad says, how long will you hunt for words, Job 18.2? Show understanding, and then we can talk. Now Bildad believes that Job is playing word games. He's saying, wise men don't talk the way you talk. They control their emotions. They they. Uh, apply the ancient wisdom. What are you talking about, Job? Are we? Why are we regarded as beasts? If you have an ESV, NIV, it says, you, why are we regarded as cattle? Earlier, Job suggested rudely, in their point of view, that he might as well ask advice from cattle than ask advice from them. In fact, in Job 17.10, if you take a peek, Job says, I do not find a wise man among you. It would be better that I talk to a cow than I talk to you. 
What would a cow tell me if I spoke to a cow? Well, something like this. Eat more chicken. That's probably what a cow would say. But anyway. He says, oh, you who tear yourself in your anger. It's your fault, Job. You tear yourself, notice. For your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place. Bildad thinks that Job is both arrogant and bordering on insanity. He says, look, are we going to change the system, the things that we know? The rocks speak of that which is immovable, that which is predictable, that which is steady. Are, are we to move everything because now you have a different worldview? See, they can't break with their system. Job must have sinned terribly to deserve this calamity. And Job's saying, no, I didn't. And that's what they don't agree with. So they have to say something like this. Does God have to move the mountains for you? Does the rock need to be moved from its place just for you, Job? I guess you're the exception to the rule. One writer says, the earth and the rock are pictures of stability, the stability of the world. But Job is rocking their system. Some people have religious systems, and they have built their whole lives on what they can predict. But God is not always predictable. Have you noticed? He doesn't always do things according to my plans, right? Because God is God. He says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. Because God's purposes are beyond what I can often see. Do you think you're the exception? Are you the special one, Job? And here's the truth, brothers and sisters, yes, we are special, we are loved, and God would not only move heaven and earth to save you, he actually decided to take your place. See, as the book of Job unfolds, we are getting more and more to the gospel, to the greater Job, the most innocent sufferer of all, who took our place. Would God move heaven and earth to save us? Yes, he would. And so now Bildad is going to break into something that he is He's going to go into a kind of a diatribe about the wicked. Some writers have called this, this is the highway to hell or the road to hell. And you're going to find that what Bildad says is a, probably a pretty right-on sermon about judgment, the judgment of the wicked. Uh, nothing here you could say is false about the, the path and destiny of the wicked. Here's the problem with Bildad's sermon. It is misapplied. Because this is not Job. Job is not a wicked man. He is a follower of God. And so even though there's truth in the sermon, it's misapplied. So you can think of this as if you're taking headings now, the road to hell or the highway to hell, and here's what Bildad says. He says, indeed, the light of the wicked goes out and the flame of his fire gives no light. In verses 5 and 6, Bildad will quote two Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 9 is close to this, and it says, The light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. Proverbs 13, 9. The Bible says that you were formerly darkness, but now you, brothers and sisters, are light in the Lord. Walk as what? Children of light. It talks about the fruit of the light, and the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what Job was doing. In fact, Eliphaz said of Job, Behold, you've admonished many. You've strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. 
and you have strengthened feeble knees. Job was a good man. He was a godly man. He was a righteous man. But now Bildad is implying that he's a wicked man. And that's why the light in his life is being snuffed out. That's why all of this is happening to him. Uh, Darkness and light are metaphors for good and evil, blessing and cursing. He says the light in his tent, he's speaking of the wicked now, is Bildad, is darkened and his lamp goes out above him. The second proverb speaks of a sheik's lamp. This is the lamp inside his tent for the lighting of his abode. His most private abode is now darkened. He must make his bed in darkness. That's Job 17, 3 or 13. The very light above his head is extinguished. See, the wicked cannot say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Can you think back to days when you didn't know the Lord? You didn't have the light of the Lord in your life. It's amazing to think about how we got by how we reasoned through things, how we dealt with the big questions of life. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment of the Lord is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. But a person who doesn't have the light of the Lord doesn't have that. And light is often used as a metaphor for truth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path psalm 119 105 see once you have the commandments of the lord coming into your life your path gets illumined the way that you should walk Uh, unbelievers the wicked are described as stumbling over they don't even know where they're going they're the blind leading the blind and even religious uh, blindness can be applied to that his vigorous stride the wicked man is shortened and his own schemes bring, brings him down. This is the road to hell. The man has some serious swagger in his day. You ever seen the person, right? I'm all that and a bag of chips and a soda. Look at me stride. Yeah, and he's swagging around. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that people who get really proud and arrogant and think they're all that, end up crashing really hard. In fact, many of us can maybe trace our own conversion experience to being prideful and then all of a sudden coming to a realization that we're not in that big of a control as we think we are and that God is actually steering the ship. A good example of a proud man who thought he was all that and his schemes brought him down is Haman in the book of Esther. Uh, or as we ca- affectionately called him, hey, man, right? And Haman's hang-up was that he didn't like Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew would not bow down to him. It doesn't matter what I get, what trophies, what accolades, what horses I ride, what chariots I ride in, who I have dinner with. It's not until Mordecai bows to me that I'll be happy, right? And then you remember the king starts to ask Morde, or he asks Haman, what should I do for a man that I really want to honor? And, oh, you should give him the royal steed and, put, and you should ride him around town and say, this is the man in whom the king delights. And remember those fateful words from the king? Okay, go and do that for Mordecai the Jew. <gasps> what? 
He had to lead him around on the royal stallion. This is a really great guy in whom the king delights. And then he built the gallows for Mordecai. I'm going to hang him on the gallows. Got a little inspiration from his close friends and wife. Yeah, hang him, hang him high. But then his plot was discovered and Haman hung on the gallows he had made for Mordecai. He hung on his own scheme. You see, there are many people scheming all day long, making their backroom scheming deals. In fact, we're told we're not to be ignorant of the devil's schemes because he is a schemer. And this idea uh, is of the devil's methods. That's the Greek word. It's methodia. And he has methodology. He's scheming to do what? To get the wicked into snares and traps. And not only them, but believers as well. The wicked, he is thrown into the net by his own feet. We're going to see six different uses of words for trapping devices. This, again, is still the road to hell. And Bildad believes uh, Job is on it. For he, the wicked man, is thrown into the net by his own feet. It's his own doing. He steps on the webbing. A snare seizes him by the heel, and a trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground, and a trap for him on the path. All around, terrors frighten him, and Harry, they harass or pester or dog him at every step. I had a few gophers show up in my backyard. You can always tell a gopher. They leave a mound of dirt behind. And so um, my neighbor, uh, has the, he has a history of being able to do this kind of thing. So I got some traps from him. But eventually I thought, I got, I got to become a big boy now. I, I got a couple of my own traps. And, and I learned from him how to do it. And so when you catch the gopher, it's kind of gross because you got to pull the gopher off the trap. And he's there. He's got the big teeth. But he destroys your yard, so you got to do it, right? So I went out in the backyard, and I had set a trap for a gopher, and my dog realized that there was a dead gopher underground, and she dug up. And I'm talking about <laughs> maybe a good foot. She dug the dead gopher out of the ground and pulled it off the trap. <laughs> Here you go, Daddy. <laughs> I was like, good dog, good dog. Dude. Anyway, why did I bring that up? I have no idea. Oh, we're talking about traps. See, there are snares and traps, right? And uh, Dave, uh, who helps us back there with so many things on the soundboard, showed me a picture. I think your wife sent it to you. And it said, you know, if you have problems, if this or that, and it's just a bunch of mirrors on the wall. And here's the truth that, uh, and this is not always, but much of our lives, it's the person we're looking back at, they're looking back at us in the mirror. <laughs> I've met the enemy. <laughs> there he or she is, right? Smiling back at me. Now, we do have the world and the devil we know. We have enemies, but doesn't it seem like sometimes we watch a person and we're like, oh, it won't be long until they step in that trap. Oh, it won't be long until that net grabs them and they're in that position. You can see patterns, right? 
His strength is famished, says Bildad of the wicked, and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. Now, who's sitting there? Job. What's one of the problems with Job right now? He is diseased where? In his skin. And Bildad's going, the wicked man is diseased in his skin. Job. See, this is what the friends have, this is how low it's gotten now. There, they subtly and not so subtly try to tell Job that he's a dirt, dirty, rotten sinner who needs to repent. He, this wicked man, is torn from the security of his tent, and they march before, they march him before the king of terrors. In the ancient world, the king of terrors was thought to be the prince of the dead, a monarch believed to reign over the subterranean region that housed the souls of the dead and the demons of plague and terror. And the picture is the wicked man's in his tent and all these things have been happening to him and now there's people who go and they grab him out of his tent and they drag him to this king of terrors, this king of death who will lock his soul in the subterranean regions forever. What is Bildad saying? He's saying, that's you, Job. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. Uh, you could translate 15 as fire resides in his tent. Brimstone or sulfur is scattered on his habitation. Now, Job's whole life has gone down. Jesus said, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Listen to this. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That's Luke 17, 29, and 30. His roots, the wicked man, are dried below, and his branch is cut off. Once the roots are dried below, there's no chance of a springing up of life. Notice he is cut off from above, and that's apparently what Bildad thinks of Job. He's been cut off by God, he's dried up, burned up, it's over. Memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name abroad. Now, can you imagine being Job? You think you're probably on the verge of death. This is what your friend is telling you. This is what your so-called comforter came over to share with you. Thanks, bro. Appreciate that. The memory of the wicked will be cut off. No name, etc. This is Proverbs 10, 7. Listen to this. It says, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Proverbs 10, verse 7. The wicked have no lasting positive influence or memory, but the righteous brethren, they have a lasting memory. In fact, we uh, call this often in the church a legacy. And I know sometimes we're hesitant because a legacy sounds a lot like it's about me. But if you leave a godly legacy to the next generation, your influence, even after you're gone, will still continue to ripple. Think with me. Right now, all over the world, the sermons of a, a country preacher named J. Vernon McGee, long decades after he's gone, are touching lives all over the world in so many different languages. And as J. Vernon McGee was on his deathbed, he told the ministry, play the tapes until the money runs out. Ma, ma dearly, what did he say? My beloved. Play the tapes, did you hear that? Tapes, until the money runs out. The money ain't run out. 
People keep giving to that ministry, to the Bible bus, and people all over the world hearing J. Vernon McGee. One, one time I was, I was in the car with a man who was attending church. I wasn't quite sure where he was spiritually. And I turned on J. Vernon McGee, and I was telling him about Bible preaching and stuff. And I turned on J. Vernon, and he goes, he goes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't want to listen to stuff like this. And it was because J. Vernon had the southern, you know, way of talking, and you need to repent from your sin and all that. But look at what God has done. Think of Adrian Rogers, who told his daughter on his deathbed, sweetie, I'm in a win-win situation. If the Lord takes me, I'll be with Jesus, and if he leaves me here, I'm going to do more ministry. I'm in a win-win situation on his deathbed. The Lord's still using Adrian Rogers. Dr. Walter Martin who uh, wrote the book on apologetics that kind of got a whole movement of Christian apologetics going, still being used decades after he's gone. And let me tell you, brethren, when you make an impact on a life and you lead someone to Jesus Christ, your influence in their life, your godly example, the righteous life that you live, the stands that you took for the gospel, the, the courage that you uh, by God's grace, we're able to manifest in a given situation will continue to ripple out in a legacy to generations. In fact, in my own family, this is all by God's grace, the generations are now Christian, and it's rippling out more and more and more. And I'm watching it in now another generation coming up uh, in terms of nieces who are now having children and my sons who will eventually... Uh, have offspring as well, should the Lord tarry. This is the beauty of a godly legacy. Now, the wicked doesn't have that. Imagine if, if it's a wicked person and they live their life just for themselves and they die, they have no godly legacy. And I want you to be thinking about generations beyond your own life, brethren, because this is what the Bible does teach us. The wicked man... He is driven from light, 18, into darkness, chased from the inhabited world, almost like Cain, who became a fugitive and a wanderer. The wicked man will be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. He, the wicked man, says Bildad, has no offspring or posterity among his people, nor any, what's your Bible say, survivor, where he sojourned. You think that's a direct shot at Job, who lost all ten of his children. Why would Bildad say something like that? So cutting? How could Job take that any other way than him personally? No survivors. No posterity. Those in the west are appalled at his fate. Those in the east, where Job was big, are seized with horror. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. End of sermon. Thank you, Bildad the Shuhite. I think you got a little shorter after that sermon. Because there was nothing edifying. There was nothing positive. There was, you know, maybe Job will pray with you. Maybe there's something else going on here. No, just more of the attack. More of the subtle, uh, you're wrong, Job. In fact, the end of the sermon, if it applies directly to Job... This is basically what Bildad says of Job. You don't know God. 
And that's one of the most cutting comments someone can make, especially if you are a lover of God and you know God, and someone becomes the judge and jury because of outward circumstances that they read on your life. Oh, you're going through that tragedy? Oh, you have this going on? You must not know God. I would be very careful, brethren, because God knows the ones who know him. Bildad doesn't really have a clue. And that's going to be proven out at the end of the book. What's the point of chapter 18? Well, maybe Bildad is trying to stir Job to repent if we take a positive of this. But Job has to be devastated. Job has been just dragged through another expression of hell, in quotes. The signs of his death are all around him, like darkness. He felt the picturesque imagery of the terrors of death dragging him out of his tent. This is what Job must be thinking. But remember, the greater Job is Jesus, and this is what he experienced for us. Darkness at the cross, feeling forsaken by the Father, tasting hell, if you will, on the cross now as what he went through. He suffered and he took upon himself the sin of the world and the wrath of God the Father. And Job responded, 19.1, he said, How long? How long will you torment me or grieve me and crush me with words? These ten times, you, the you is plural, you have insulted me, you are not ashamed to wrong me. How long will you torment or crush me with your words? Do you know how powerful words are, brothers and sisters? Words have the ability to build you up, and they also have the ability to absolutely devastate you. Words can edify. There are some neutral things, of course. Where do you want to go to dinner? Sometimes that's neutral. <laughs> what flavor of ice cream do you want? Okay. But words can build up or they can tear down. And Job declares something here that's important by way of application. How do, how do most of your words impact other people? Edifying, non-edifying. Building up, or tearing down. We hear coaches say, you got to tear them down before you can build them up. Right? Tear them down! Well, maybe in some settings that's appropriate to correct, to exhort. But if you do a lot of tearing down, I would imagine you're probably not doing as much building up as tearing down. And there's a lot of people walking around with wounds. You can't see, but they're there. And Job has enough physical problems to begin with. And now his friends. He says, even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. Okay, if I did make a mistake, and here the Hebrew has the idea, uh, if I made an unintentional error, if I made an inadvertent blunder, that's mine to carry. But you don't know what's going on. Why are you guessing at what I did? I don't even know what I did. If I don't know what I did, how can you know? Well, we know, right? And Job is saying, look, if I did something inadvertent, remember, Job's not claiming to be sinless or perfect. He was blameless. He walked consistently with God. But he said, okay, if I made a stumble somewhere along the way that I can't remember, who are you? Let me own that. If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me, five, and prove my disgrace to me, Know then that God has wronged me. Now here's where Job goes wrong. He thinks God's doing it to him. God has certainly allowed it, but the devil's doing it to him. 
and has closed his net around me. Okay, you want to talk about traps, Bildad? I feel like God has closed his net around me. I feel like he's trapped me in his net and pulled me up into the trees and I have no way out. That's how I feel. Behold, he says, I'm experiencing, you want to talk about hell? I'll give you a view of hell from the inside, says Job. Behold, says Job, behold, 19.7, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. Here's the picture of someone kind of being mugged, if you will. Help! Help! Somebody help! There was a story that came out from New York uh, several years back that a person had been shot in a convenience store, literally shot with a gun, lying on the ground bleeding. And people were walking into the store like a liquor store, stepping over the wounded person. And some were taking photos of him with their phone. And people weren't even calling for 911 or trying to administer aid to this person who was shot. What? That's Job. I, I've been hit. I cry out. Nobody. He has walled up my way. There's an irony here because Job, uh, Satan said of Job, you've put a hedge about him. He said this to God. You won't let me get at him. Now Job says he's walled up my way. I cannot pass. He's put darkness on my paths. He has stripped my honor from me, removed the crown from my head. Look at all this language. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me and camp around my tent. Why does God consider me a threat? Look at me, Job might say. Do I look like a threat? Does there need to be an army come against me? I want to park here for a second, brothers and sisters, and tell you about a reality. Sometimes in life, God can feel, in quotes, like your enemy. See, we know God is our ultimate hope, but sometimes our feelings, what we're going through, if we're going to be completely honest, we sometimes have to say something like this, God, I know what the Bible says that you're for me and not against me. I know the Bible says that you, you began a good work and you're going to complete it. But what are you doing right now? See, we've all felt that way. And Job doesn't know everything that's happening in the heavenlies. He doesn't know what God intended for this book for generations to come. He doesn't know the spiritual warfare. He doesn't know uh, everything about the greater Job that Jesus, the Redeemer, is coming. He has hints of it. And so Job says, this is how I feel. And look, sometimes we just feel this way and we, we can't make sense of it. Look, here we are in 9-11, brothers and sisters, 18 years. That day, if you can remember where you were, did you have some questions? People were wrestling with, they had questions about God. Why would God allow this? What's happening? Well, that happens all around the planet. It's been happening since really the beginning. And the real question for Job and us is where will I look for my answers? He says, he's removed my brothers far from me, 13. My acquaintances are completely estranged, estranged from me. It's like everybody doesn't want to Admit that they know me. My relatives have failed and my intimate friends have forgotten me. 
Nobody even sends me a Christmas card anymore. I don't get party invitations. I'm the running joke of the community. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he doesn't answer. I have to implore or beg him with my mouth. Servants that I used to say, okay, I need you to do this. I need you to go over there. Now they're like, eh, whatever. What are you going to do about it, old man? You cut my pay in half because you lost pretty much everything. So who cares what you say anymore? Lost all respect. Maybe this is a good way to think about this, folks. Think about a person who was in a very influential position who fell and had authority and uh, power over individuals and respect and honor. We could think of a fallen pastor. Can't help but think of that. And we know there's been some major falls. A person who had respect and honor and you know, people who were uh, happy to serve alongside or for. Can you imagine if that got pulled from you in one hour? Can you imagine? We, we mentioned, we know some of the names right now. If I said the name, you would know the name. Have you ever thought about what's going on with that person right now tonight? You ever thought about how many regrets they might they must have for a moment of weakness or maybe a pattern of habitual sin that got the best of them. You ever, you ever, I found myself thinking about this and thinking, Lord, I need to pray. I need to pray for those people because they're still people and they still belong to you. And even though they fell on their face, it doesn't mean that you don't love them. Job has had this incredible reversal happen to him Areas in Job's life where he once had support and commanded respect are gone. He's alienated from his community. This is what one writer says, a cruel reversal. This is not the most wholesome movie ever shown, but you guys remember the movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd? Okay, it goes back a while. But remember, uh, the owners of the company have a bet for $1 to see if they can basically destroy Dan Aykroyd's life and they make it look like he's a drug pusher and they uh, seize all of his bank accounts and he goes from this high up in this company on Wall Street to nothing on the street. He has to beg to even have a place to stay. That's how Job feels. It gets worse. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. And all the ladies in the room said, amen. <laughs> And I am loathsome to my own brothers. The text literally reads, my breath is strange. Uh, I don't know where you want to make the application, but I'll leave that to you. Here's what you could say. Job had unholy halitosis, Batman. His wife finds his breath and body to be offensive. She probably says something like this. Don't come near me. Don't touch me. You're gross. You got worms or something growing out of your skin. Your boils ooze. You got bad breath. Now, can it get any worse for a single individual? Alienated from everything. And even his wife says, can you go brush your teeth again? Get some of that special mouthwash. You stink. He says, even 
Young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. This is what one writer says. He says, even young uh, children trained in those days to give deference to elders on all occasions now repudiate this noble man. When Job struggles to stand up, instead of being silent out of respect for this dignified elder, even the little kids jeer at him. All my associates are intimate friends. They abhor or detest me. Those I love have turned against me. See the, uh, if you have an ESV or NIV, see where it says intimate friends there, associates is uh, rendered intimate friends. This is uh, the same as Psalm 55, 12 through 14. And it ultimately is pictured in the betrayal of Judas to Jesus. And Judas said to those he led into the Garden of Gethsemane, the one that I kiss, he's the one. And he came up to Jesus, and the Greek word doesn't say he gave Jesus a peck on the cheek. It says he kissed him over and over again. Rabbi! Rabbi! And Jesus looked at him and said, what have you come for, friend? Betrayed by a familiar friend. Well, Job is experiencing, foreshadowing the coming of the greater Job, Jesus, as I've mentioned he says, my bone clings to my skin and my flesh. I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. 20, we're almost done. By the skin of my teeth is a, an expression that we've picked up in our society. It's probably something like this. I don't even know how my body continues to sustain life. Pity me, he might scream to the heavens. Pity me, oh you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Have mercy on me. Can you imagine being one of Job's friends like, he says why do you persecute me as god does the hand of god has struck me end of 21 why do you persecute me as god does are you not satisfied with my flesh do you need another pound of flesh to be satisfied oh that my words were written oh that they were inscribed in a book oh wait a minute oh, they are we're reading the book of job well that came true Oh, that my words were in a book. Job, they're in a book. <laughs> that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Books wear out. Maybe it could be in a rock somewhere. Well, this book hasn't worn out, Job. We're reading it now. And then, as if a lightning bolt struck out of left field, Job says, and as for me, I what? I know that my Redeemer lives. Every time Job is about to implode on the ground, pull up, Job, pull up. You think it's over. Crash and burn, baby. Guy can't get any lower. All of a sudden, he comes up with this Redeemer stuff. And he doesn't say, I guess, I hope. He says, what? I know my Redeemer that's the word in Hebrew, goel. It literally, in the Hebrew picture language, it means to lift up God. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus Christ was coming, and somehow Job knew it. And you can read commentators, and some say, how could God rescue Job from God? 
It doesn't make sense. If Job thinks that God is his enemy, then how could he call upon God to rescue him from God? But do you know that that is a hint of the Trinity, right? That there's God the Son and God the Father. But here's the other thing. In the gospel, God does rescue you from God. How so, Pastor Michael? Because God is a righteous judge and he will judge sin righteously, but God saved you from God by becoming a man and taking the punishment that you and I, what, deserved. And way back in the book of Job is the gospel of Jesus. I know my Redeemer lives. He's the living one, the living God, if you will. And at the last, would you notice, brothers and sisters, he will take his stand. This is a technical or legal term to stand up as a witness in court. That's what Job's been looking for. Someone to stand in my corner. Somebody be my advocate. Everybody's left me. Children, dogs, relatives, wife, gone. I have a Redeemer. He will stand up as my witness in court on the earth, literally on the dust. Maybe on the very ash heap that Job is sitting, Job is saying, right here in the midst of my agony, he will enter into my pain and become a witness for me and say, this one is innocent. And brothers and sisters, this is the application to you. That in heaven, Jesus is your great advocate. And even though the enemy accuses you before the Father day and night, Right? Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. And he might say something like this. Oh, Father, they're fine. It's paid in full. I know my Redeemer lives. Do you know it? He's alive. And even after my skin is destroyed, here probably a reference to the resurrection, yet from my flesh, what does Job say? I shall see God. I'm going to see this Redeemer. The one that I, I have questions about, and I'll probably have questions, and to my last breath, I'm still going to trust Him. Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Do you see what Job is doing? He's doing what all of us have to do at times. I have questions, I'm going to wrestle with stuff, but I know my Redeemer lives. I just have to look at the cross to know his love. I have many questions I have to put in a file, but I know my Redeemer lives. There's lots of things I don't know, but something I do know is that Jesus died for me and is alive, and I'm going to see God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. And then he says, oh, my heart faints within me. Oh, our deep longing for this Redeemer has been realized. He's Jesus. He's our kinsman Redeemer. And Job ends with, now if you say, how shall we persecute him? What pretext for a case against him can we find? Job says then, be afraid of the sword what God uses against his enemies, if you will, for yourselves. For, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword. 
so that you may know there's, a, there's judgment. Something like this. Hey, brothers, I'd be very careful what kind of judgments you come to because my Redeemer lives and He's the judge. So don't judge me too quickly. Don't let your system box you in. Two takeaways and we're done. We should be careful about making hasty legalistic judgments and becoming judge and jury in any case that we hear about or come across. We don't know everything. What we need is biblical wisdom, applied correctly, led by the Spirit, and we have to be careful because we think we know things until it happens to us. And then all of a sudden, we can get quickly corrected. Number two, even in the darkest of times, we can bring our pain to our Redeemer. And you can know, I can know, no matter what we are facing, I can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Father, thank you for your word, for the precious people who have come out tonight on this Wednesday night to study this great book of Job. It's not an easy book. <laughs> it's probably one of the hardest books in the Bible, but it's there that we might find the reality of the problem of evil, we, we're not going to ignore it, it's here, but the power of the gospel. And we know that our Redeemer lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you're alive. You conquered death. You brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You are our Redeemer and our great God and King. Whatever you need to bring to his feet tonight, if you're not a Christian, the first thing you have to do is say, Lord, I believe. Thank you, Jesus, for entering into my pain. Thank you for dying on the cross. Pray it if it's you. Thank you for rising from the dead. I trust you as my Savior and my Lord. If you're doing that for the first time, pray it in your heart. Pray it out loud. He'll hear you. I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. I repent of my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising from the dead. I trust you for my salvation. And then, sweet saint, for those of you who are here and maybe your life is on the ash heap right now, you have lots of questions, lots of difficulty. Maybe you've had a difficult diagnosis. Maybe you've suffered in different ways, different losses, whatever they may be. I pray, my prayer for you is that this verse will resonate in your soul. I know my Redeemer lives. Thank you, Lord, for that eternal hope we have in Christ. May you fill your people with hope tonight. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.